Character development is my primary mission. My secondary mission is your academic growth. And then finally, it's your soccer growth. So yes, let's grow up. Let's, let's you know, be places on time. Let's go to class. Let's do our homework. Let's take responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the mission is certainly um, a human development uh, <laughs> platform. And what's a subset of that? Yeah, I'd love for you to graduate, uh, sign a pro contract, win some you know, gold medals before you retire, a couple world championships. And does it work for us? Yeah. I mean, the four world championship teams to the United States, someone did the math uh, during the last world championship. One out of three players that are reigning world champions for the United States on all four of those rosters, one out of three were trained in the competitive cauldrons at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hello and welcome to season two of the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. I am a speaker and trainer who helps teams and organizations build winning cultures. As a trainer, I have the privilege of working with some of the best athletic programs in the world. As a keynote speaker, I have given two TEDx talks and I have spoken on stages in 36 countries and counting at national conferences, Fortune 500 companies, and to Team USA. To learn how I could serve your team, head on over to bobbyaudley.com. 50 Cups of Coffee is an idea that began with a TEDx talk in 2016 and has become so much more. This podcast is a show where I have coffee in conversation with some of the best coaches in the world, and we talk about leadership, team culture, and connection. For season one, I sat down with coaches from the NFL, NBA, MLB, Premier League, and the NCAA. I talked with a coach who works in hospitality, helping hotels serve and operate better. I talked with an award-winning acting coach and with one of the most successful organizational culture coaches of the past 20 years. In my reflection of all the guests I sat down with for season one, I tried to think, what do each of them have in common? They're all coaches. On season two of 50 Cups of Coffee, you will hear from the best coaches in the world about how they built and continue to sustain winning cultures. And we kick things off with an individual I consider one of the top five greatest coaches of all time from any industry. If you were to ask me for my top five dream guests for this podcast, this guy is one of them. Today, I have coffee with the University of North Carolina women's soccer head coach, Anson Dorrance. Anson Dorrance has served as the head coach at UNC for the past 40 plus years. In his tenure, Anson has won a staggering 22 Division I national championships. And as far as I understand it, he is the only coach in NCAA history to win 20 championships in a single sport. I read he became the first to do so in 2009. If someone else has matched him, shoot me a message and I will correct it. But, but I'm going to read that as he's the only one who's ever done it. When ESPN announced its list of the best coaches of the past quarter century, Anson was one of only two coaches to make the list from a non-revenue collegiate sport. So basically a college sport that is not basketball or football. What else is staggering is the list of iconic players who have learned from Coach Dorrance. To literally name just a few, you have Christine Lilly, Tobin Heath, and of course the great Mia Hamm. Away from North Carolina, Anson pioneered women's soccer on a global stage by leading the first ever U.S. women's national team to a World Cup championship in 1991. And in 2008, Anson was inducted 
into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. As long as this intro is, I could go on. I won't, but I could. Anson Dorans is a living legend and a true GOAT and my guest today. If you are a regular listener of this show, you've become used to my format, which is typically, not always, but most typically, I will ask the guests, who are you? Tell us about your journey. If they're a coach, I will ask, how did you get into coaching? From here, the conversation will evolve into talking about team culture and the power of connection. I did not do that with this episode. Anson's life is beautifully shared in the biography by Tim Crothers called The Man Watching. This book is one of my all-time favorites and a must-read for any coach or leader of people. If you enjoy this podcast, The Man Watching is a must-read for you. One of my top tips for the 50 Cups of Coffee Challenge is to do your research. When you get a mentor like Anson Dorrance to have coffee with you, do not waste his time or your time by asking questions you could find answers for on your own. So we will skip question one. Go read The Man Watching. Coach and I discuss UNC culture, the importance of connecting with and loving your players, and we talk a lot about winning. Anson is very direct and clear about how he feels about competition and the process it takes to win, and he is not apologizing for how he feels about those things. I often reference Anson's own podcast called Vision of a Champion with Anson Dorrance, which is also the name of his most recent updated re-released book. I highly encourage you to check out each of those as well. Again, it's Vision of a Champion as a podcast and as a book. I feel like I've given you a lot of homework with this intro, uh, reading The Man Watching, checking out Vision of a Champion. But for now, please enjoy my cup of coffee with Anson Dorrance. Anson, thank you for sitting down and having a, a virtual cup of coffee with me. Bobby, my pleasure. So my first question is, is actually pretty specific. I, you have a, a line you, you, in your podcast, which is a vision of a champion, which is, as I understand it, um, kind of it's in line with your book, which you just re-released, correct? It's a re-release with updates of the book, Vision of a Champion. Yeah, what we did is uh, uh, they wanted to reprint the book because it's still uh, grinding. Yeah. And actually, I went through the book in preparation for producing the podcast, and it's still relevant. Yeah. Uh, basically, all of the uh, places where we are right now, you can see the seeds in the book. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing in that book that's obsolete. The first book I wrote, Training Soccer Champions, which is also still sell- selling, I would say one third of that book is obsolete. Uh, but uh, uh, Vision of a Champion. Uh, it's a book I wrote for uh, youth players. Uh, it still has value. And so what we've done with the podcast is we've tried to design a, a podcast guest that will sort of represent the elements of each chapter the best. And then obviously we've tried to sprinkle our podcast with a who's who of, uh, you know, former UNC players, but also personalities in general. So that's the uh, design of our podcast to sort of replicate uh, and uh, bring in someone to chat about each chapter in the book. I love it. I love the format. I love, you know, of course I listened to episode one with Mia Hamm and, and listened to Roy Williams and one of my favorites actually uh, Tobin Heath. And that's where this question comes from 
I think it was in that episode, you say that in college, talent and athletic character collide. And I wanted you to talk now a bit more about that. Number one, kind of explain to listeners what you mean by that of talent and athletic character collide, but also define what you specifically mean by athletic character. Well, first of all, thank you, because I think you're getting to the heart of what I think is absolutely critical for player development. It's to have this conversation about, you know, where you want to go. Uh, because uh, a lot of the elite schools in this country, and we're certainly one of them, have a privilege of recruiting extraordinarily talented uh, student athletes. And I've had that privilege, uh, as have a lot of other schools, to bring in these extraordinary young women with just wonderful, uh, um, basically, soccer talent. Mm -hmm. And uh, they come in, and of course, the environments they all come from, they're not just the best player on the team's we've recruited them from. They're oftentimes the best player uh, in the state they come from, sometimes the region. And if we're lucky, we'll bring in the best player in the country uh, in that age group. And so all of a sudden they come in and now um, you get to watch and see what happens. And of course I've been doing this for so long. I've been looking at this for a long time. And uh, all the kids we bring in are kids I've seen play and I know they can contribute at our level. And then what's really interesting is to watch what happens because some of the ones make it and some of the ones don't. And you would like to think that it's so easy to predict the ones that are gonna make it and the ones that won't, but it's amazing how often you're gonna be wrong. Because mm -hmm. if you use just raw talent as your indicator as to whether or not they're gonna be successful, you're gonna strike out uh, on many occasions. If you look at, uh, uh, some other qualities are going to strike out on other occasions. And so what we've tried to do here at UNC is we've taken this idea of uh, a player's personal narrative and our job in a player conference is to get this personal narrative to the truth. Because the way everyone's personal narrative is designed, it's designed with vestiges of your parents involved in it, uh, maybe your youth coaches, and oftentimes your parents are trying to protect you from the chaos of the universe. Your parents just don't want you to get hurt. They don't want you to you know, have any pain. And as a result, what's happening now with so many of the kids that we end up recruiting, uh, the parents are taking away accountability as well. Mm -hmm. So anytime their kid doesn't succeed in something to protect them from pain, the parent has created an excuse for them. So now all of a sudden on this player's, you know, uh, basically character window is an excuse for why uh, they're not uh, a starter or why they don't play as many minutes as they would like. And all of a sudden uh, it's that, you know, famous uh, collection of cartoons that uh, a sports psychologist presented to us in uh, 2012, where uh, the first cartoon has the date 1969 on it. And the reason I will never forget this, is that's the year I graduated from high school. So all of a sudden, <laughs> This slides up there and it's 1969. Okay, and I'm awake. Yeah, that was my graduation year from high school. This kid's coming home from school in the cartoon. He's got all Fs on his report card. In 1969, the parents would scream at the kid. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, the cartoon is 2012 when the sports psychologist is presenting us this lecture. The kid comes home from school, same thing, all Fs on the report card. And what happens now? the parents are screaming at the teacher. So there's been a paradigm shift. So now what the parent's job is apparently, 
And obviously the initial uh, description for this parent was the helicopter parent. Mm -hmm. Now there's an even better description. It's the snowplow parent. Yeah. So now the job of the parent is to make sure no kid has any stress in his or her life. And this snowplow parent is pushing every obstacle out of the way of their children. Obviously exemplified most spectacularly of the parents that bought their kids you know, entry into the University of Southern California mm -hmm. or um, the Stanford, you know, basically uh, yachting team or something. Yeah. Uh, and so this is where we're evolving to. So what's my job now as a coach? Because uh, obviously all of these kids are in that water of, you know, the self-esteem movement where, you know, if a kid circulates blood, uh, they get a trophy. If they breathe correctly all day, they win another mm -hmm. trophy. So mm -hmm. now uh, achievement and standards are thrown out the window because what's happening right now, standards are shattered because of the way parents are raising their kids. Failure is protected. Mm -hmm. So you've never failed in your life if you're raised, you know, according to whatever it is, Dr. Spock or whatever book the parents are following. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden I'm left with this kid. So what's my first meeting? It's a meeting about athletic character. And what are the elements of athletic character? Well, there's self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, love of playing the game, love of watching the game, grit, coachability, and connection. And all nine of these pieces are going to either be a positive for that player and help them get to their potential, or it's going to undermine them. Mm -hmm. And so this is the collision. The collision is now all of a sudden they're out there on the field and, oh, my gosh, that move that used in high, that, that I used in high school that worked every single time because I was twice as fast as everyone, that move where I would kick it past a player and beat them to the ball doesn't work anymore. Because now when I kick it past the player and try to beat them to the ball, oh my gosh, this kid's just as fast as I am. And by the way, every now and again, yeah, a kid would have my speed, but I would collide with them, knock the player on her rear end, and I would still win the ball. And all of a sudden I collide with this kid that's just as fast as I am. Mm. Oh my gosh, this is a senior. Mm. I'm a freshman. And guess what just happened? I was knocked senseless, not the senior. So now all of a sudden, uh, this entire environment changes because now they can't just use simple ideas for domination. Now they've got to recruit pieces of all nine of these things I just introduced. And so what the conversation is in this player conference is a cliche we stole from uh, you know, the national championship winning, winning coach at the University of Alabama in football. And I love his cliches, and they are this. Basically, average players want to be left alone. Good players want to be coached. Great players want the truth. So now all of a sudden, this player conference, I am telling them the truth. And we are turning those nine categories into numbers. And the numbers replicate what direction they're going in right now. If they have a five in one of those categories, that's our criteria for U.S. full team and Olympic team caliber and self-discipline or competitive fire or self-belief. If it's 4.5, it means they're cruising at a basically professional level. If they're at a four, it's UNC starter level. If it's 3.5, it's a kid that plays in every half, basically a kid I sub into the game. If it's three, you make the traveling team. If it's below that, you don't travel or play. And so now we're giving them an accurate assessment of where they are, but also at their current rate of commitment, where they're going to be. Mm -hmm. And this is eye-opening because, of course, they've never even struggled to play 90 minutes on every team they've ever played on. And now they're in with 30 other girls that have also done nothing but started and played 90 minutes. And this is the collision. This is the collision between athletic talent and right. character. Because when the young women with character – 
uh, are the ones that will survive this and get on the field and get to higher levels. And the ones without it uh, will basically fade away. Do you have a, a, a story of, a, of an athlete who uh, is introduced to that, right? They sit down for their first player conference meeting, they're introduced to that, and, and they struggled with it, but developed because of it. Because obviously, you know, the, the question a lot of, of people think about is, you know, can you teach a, a love of the grind? Can you teach this athletic character? And I don't want to ask you, can you teach it? Because you, you share enough in your books and podcasts how you can. So, you know, do you have a story of, of a player who came in without it and did develop it because of your com competitive cauldron, because of, of how you run things? Well, basically, uh, I'm glad you brought up the question about the competitive cauldron. If you look at those nine qualities, the ring that rules them all, in my opinion, is competitive fire. Mm -hmm. So if you're missing a piece, you know, be missing one of the others. If you're mm -hmm. missing competitive fire, it's so hard for you to change. Mm -hmm. And also, if you genuinely want to become elite in our game, if you don't love the ball, you're not going to get there because mm -hmm. ball mastery is so critical in our game. It's so difficult to be a great player if you can't execute. So even if you're competitive as hell, but you trap balls further than I can kick them, <laughs> you're not going to be effective. And so a lot of these pieces are sort of intertwined for ultimate success. But the ring that rules them all, in my opinion, the ring that can help you improve dramatically every single practice is when you fight. Mm -hmm. Well, you compete like hell to try to win everything you're involved in, because then if this is so important to you, you are going to practice more. You are going to develop ball mastery. And that's actually the way I developed it. I mean, uh, I came into UNC and I was, I was a, a good soccer player, but I certainly wasn't a great one. But what helped me is just this passion to try to win everything I was involved in. And so what did that do for me? That caused me in Greenwich, Connecticut in the summers when I was home from the University of North Carolina to live on a wall. I went down to the junior high right down the street uh, from uh, where I lived. And I just started smashing my ball up against a wall because I had all kinds of technical challenges as a player. And I knew that this was going to help me develop, mm -hmm. obviously, more power in my strike, more range in my service, but also in a first touch as the ball comes off the wall. So then you make a commitment. So for me, um, yes, um, you can change where you are. Um, and what this does is it tells you where you need to work. And we've got a criteria for every single numerical question mark of whether you not have uh, self-discipline or all the other things. I mean, we've got a, a route to go. And the initial freshman doesn't know this. So this freshman is in her first player conference with me. And uh, the, the uh, nine qualities is a self-evaluation. Mm -hmm. I'm there to make sure there's a standard, but they're evaluating themselves. And so basically we ask them, well, what about uh, a self-discipline? Yeah, that's the first thing we talk about. So where are you in terms of self-discipline? Now keep in mind for this meeting, we have already done a beep test. For those that don't know what the beep is, it's a cardiovascular measure of your cardiovascular efficiency and fitness. And it's basically you're running uh, 20 uh, meters out, a beep goes off, 20 meters back, another beep goes off, you have a short rest. And then basically the beeps get closer and closer together. Basically, you've got to run faster and faster because eventually you'll be late uh, for a beep and then basically you're eliminated. Mm -hmm. uh, usually on a beep test, you have one opportunity to make a mistake and then the next one you're out. Uh, so basically the kids have to demonstrate they're fit. So the kid comes in and they're a freshman and we're going to look at their athletic character. And um, so what do you think? What's your self-discipline like? So five is again, Olympic caliber, national team caliber. 
4.5 is pro. Four is starter. So every kid wants to start. I have never had a freshman come in, no matter how miserable they've been in training for the last three weeks, and not told me her self-discipline was a four. Yeah. Because I know what's going through her mind. Because, you know, she's thinking, you know, she was admitted to the University of North Carolina. She, she's got some intellect. You know, she's going, uh, uh, well, what is it? What do you give yourself in self-discipline? Well, four. And I said, well, what'd you get on the beep? Well, I got a 28 in the beep. I said, what's our standard in the beep? And the player would say, well, it's 40. So you got a 28 in the beep. I'm going to give you a 2.8 in self-discipline. Now the brighter ones go, oh, he's taken my beep score and he's moved the decimal point over one. And now from then on, now they're really nervous because now the BS flies out the window because what the player now knows is I've got a numerical system to catch them to demonstrate basically all these different qualities. And of mm -hmm. course I do. And so what happens for the first time in this kid's life that's used to, you know, having parents that, you know, fluff them up and, you know, protect them again from everything. Uh, now, all of a sudden it's done with numbers and this is a different kettle of fish. So now it's about standards. It's about where you want to go. It's about how hard you're willing to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now it's a, it's a different conversation. And this is an important conversation because if they don't acknowledge the fact that they are responsible for everything, they don't have control over their lives. Mm -hmm. If I am determining whether or not they start, they're in trouble. If they are determining whether or not they start, they're in full control. And how can you be in full control? Yeah, clear 40 on the beep at a minimum. Because guess what? Almost all the starters are going to be over a 40 because they want to play. Mm -hmm. So start to check all the boxes. Mm -hmm. And what I think a, a great nuance that I'd like you to talk about is, you know, you're, you're sharing this, this meeting that you have with your player and it's, it's, it's based in numbers and statistics and here's our standard. And you're, I'm picturing a, a college freshman sitting in front of their head coach in this meeting. And, and I think what allows my assumption and observation of you of what allows you to have this direct of a conversation is something you've talked about a lot before of this concept of loving and caring for your players and uh, a line that, that, uh, we use all the time that I've heard you say is, um, you know, no one cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And so how has that be, how is that a part of your coaching style and why is that so important? Well, I'll share this uh, story that uh, uh, really meant a lot to me. Um, obviously I've got a lot of kids playing uh, on professional teams all over the world. And this one kid called me up and she was struggling with her pro coach. And I will never side with the player against the coach. Um, because if I do that, then all of a sudden I'm doing the same thing parents do with their mm. kids. You know, when they say, oh, you know, you should be starting or something. You know, that's nah, that's never going to help the kids start. Even if I completely agree with her, I'm still siding with the coach. Because mm -hmm. she's going to have to figure out a way to navigate the environment she's in. Anyway, she was really pissed at this coach. And so finally she blurted it out. You know, she said, you know, Anson, after I finished playing for you, I thought I could play anywhere. Sort of a backhanded compliment, basically <laughs> saying, you know, heck, I played for you. So, yeah. you know, there's clearly going to be easy for me wherever I went because yeah. you were so demanding of me and so critical of me. There wasn't a place I could go on the face of the earth that was going to be, uh, right. you know, well, harder than your environment. <laughs> I made it through so, that you, grind. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and of course, I'm joking with I'm taking that as a compliment. She said, yeah. And you know what? even through your criticism, I could feel the love. Mm. And I really appreciated that because uh, um, I want them to feel the love. I mean, I do love these kids. 
And even if I am holding them to a high standard, uh, if I am not letting them get away with anything, um, I want them to feel the love because I genuinely do care about them. And I care about them for reasons beyond the game. Mm. And uh, that was a wonderful story she shared with me. And I told her how much I genuinely appreciated it. And so that's what we try to do. I mean, uh, the criticisms that we have are constructive. But for a kid that's never really had any truly constructive criticism because of, you know, the modern soft parent that wants to protect the kid from pain, mm -hmm. even the most benign, you know, constructive criticism could blow a player up because right now they come in so fragile, which is why the cauldron's so critical. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, in fact, uh, here I will read it to you. Um, it's uh, my most recent leadership council that changed a core value uh, uh, was in Julia Ashley's senior year or junior year, junior spring. And this was an alpha female for me that's now playing for Louisville in the NWSL, basically the new franchise. And she and the rest of the leadership got together and they wanted a, a, an additional uh, core value that the kids had to memorize and basically live. Uh, we had 12 until this meeting and then she decided we needed another one. <laughs> and so we designed a new one. So here it is. She wanted accountable and here it is. I'm just going to read the language uh, to you. This is the biggest challenge for the millennials. Now is the period to escape the protections of loving parents who don't want you to get hurt. You have four years to get ready for the chaos of the universe. Mark Cohen, an award-winning UNC assistant professor of English and comparative literature, when asked, who is the best teacher you ever had and why, said this. The best teacher I have ever had is failure. Samuel Beckett said it best. Ever tried? ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. So basically in our environment, in the competitive cauldron, you are failing every single day. And then you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision on whether or not you're gonna come back the next day and try to succeed. And it's not easy. Why? Because everyone around you is talented. So this is the collision. So your athletic character is what you are deciding between that practice where you couldn't win to save your life and coming back the next day and deciding to go after it. So here's what they memorize. Some want to be exempt. They do not want to excel. They do not want to exert. They want to be considered excellent for desiring to be held exempt from all accountability. So that's describing the backgrounds they came from. Mm -hmm. They've come from backgrounds where they're just not held accountable. And here's the other part of the quote that's critical. So what protects all these kids from accountability? their own narrative. And that's the narrative I'm trying to shatter in these meetings. This narrative is not interested in exploring their potential, but it is crafted to keep them comfortable while recruiting every possible excuse along the way. Mm -hmm. So that's the parent. That's the parents, you know, talk in the kid's head. That's the youth coach that's, you know, protecting her from the possibility that she's not as good as these other kids or working as hard or competing as much, et cetera. So, um, what's their own narrative? It's interested in exploring their potential, crafted to keep them comfortable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we want to live? So now we basically paraphrase Alex Ferguson of Man U fame. We want to take responsibility for our own actions. We want to take responsibility for our own errors, our own performance level, and eventually for every result. So this is the transformation of the kids becoming totally accountable for mm -hmm. everything. Uh, and so this process, um, is through failure. And that's the collision. That's the collision of athletic character and talent. And this was what you just read in this, this core value that was added came from the players. 
Yeah, this is their discussion. I have a leadership yeah. council and we meet uh, once a week in uh, basically all winter and spring, because obviously mm-hmm. during the season, we still have a leadership council, but we don't meet as often. Right. But in the off season, we meet and talk about our culture a lot. And we're mm-hmm. talking about it right now with this current group, even though we are in season in effect. But all of these core values and this, uh, the two most critical things in my program are the cauldron, mm-hmm. which holds everyone accountable, but also this, our core values. We want to mm-hmm. live a certain way. I don't believe in rules. I wanted to design a soccer program I would like to play in. Mm-hmm. I went to a boys boarding school in Freiburg, Switzerland. We spent every single day trying to break every rule we could and not get caught. <laughs> That's the game that you're sort of trained as in boarding yeah. school. You're trained in breaking rules because you're so you know locked up all the time. You spend your life trying to break every rule. I hate rules. If someone gives me a rule, yeah, I'm going to figure out, well, how can I break this and not get caught? So I spent all my time you know, doing that in boarding school. I didn't want to construct an environment where I have all these ridiculous rules like mm-hmm. show up on time as if that has to be a rule. Are you kidding me? Does that really have to be a rule? Yeah. I mean, you have a high school diploma. Does that really have to be a rule for you? You <laughs> just, you frigging idiot. I mean, so we don't have all these insipid rules that everyone has to follow. So what ends up happening? I am trying to have them develop into adulthood. So what's adulthood? Adulthood is principle-centered living. So we want them to live by a set of principles and then obviously govern themselves because here's the coolest thing about college. You are a free woman. Mm-hmm. If you decide not to go to class that day, hey, no one's checking on you. I mean, you know, we can if you want us to have a rule system where, you know, we are checking on you. But no, we're going to look at your GPA. If it's not appropriate, you know, you're going to basically pay the price because uh, character development is my primary mission. My secondary mission is your academic growth. And then finally, it's your soccer growth. So, yes, let's grow up. Let's let's, you know, be places on time. Let's go to class. Let's do our homework. Let's take responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the mission is certainly um, a human development uh, platform. And what's a subset of that? Yeah, I'd love for you to graduate, uh, sign a pro contract, win some you know, gold medals before you retire, a couple world championships. And does it work for us? Yeah. I mean, the four world championship teams to the United States, someone did the math uh, during the last world championship. One out of three players that are reigning world champions for the United States on all four of those rosters, one out of three were trained in the competitive cauldrons at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. No, it's unbelievable. I, I, you know, was watching you know this past World Cup and and, and the championship, and I, I sent you a text after they won because at first I was thinking like you know you know you're you're not obviously you know you, last time you coached them was what ninety one, but it's like your impact, however, on that team is still felt to this day, and it's talked about by many players and even coaches on the other sideline. Uh, and, and, and you're right. I think what continues to come back is even the players that talk about it will say have come through this competitive cauldron. And so uh, it's not just UNC. It's not just being coached by you. It's the competitive cauldron. So uh, talk a little bit. I know you've talked about it on many podcasts and in many books, but in context of the conversation we've had um, for listeners that maybe have never heard of it, obviously they can go look it up. I encourage them to do so. But even just now briefly, what is the competitive cauldron and why, why has it produced this uh, legacy within women's soccer? Well, let me share its origins because I think that'll help people. I don't want to pretend for a second that all this stuff are just, you know, great ideas I came up with, you know, on the fly. No, I mean, all of us uh, uh, imitate 
imitate the people we respect and admire. And I had the extraordinary privilege as a young coach at University of North Carolina uh, to be uh, under the leadership of uh, uh, Dean Smith, a legendary former basketball coach at the University of North Carolina, basically Michael Jordan's college mm -hmm. basketball coach. And he was an incredibly generous man. Uh, and what he used to say is, you know, Anson, if you're bored one day and you want to come watch my practices, feel free. Uh, you know, I'd have no issue if you sat there with your staff and, uh, you know, see what we uh, do to see if there's something you can steal to, to help you in your environment. I was thinking, are you kidding me? So we jumped on it and we went there and all of a sudden we get there. We have to sit in a certain part of the gym. Uh, so this wasn't, you know, slap dash, you know, hang out here on a couch and then watch us. No, 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 no. We were sitting in a certain part of the gym uh, as a group. Uh, and when we got there, the manager would meet us and then escort us to where we had to sit. And then he would hand us um, basically that day's practice uh, uh, matrix. And uh, you would see the practice would start at a certain time. And then, at, you know, four minutes and, you know, maybe four or five minutes past three, you know, you did this and then, at, you know, another 10 minutes later, you did that. And then there were these water breaks and this is all done on the clock. And I'm looking at the clock and looking at this thing that I was handed. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? They're following this schedule to the letter. Uh, and then the other thing I'm noticing is they've got all these assistant basketball coaches. I'm sorry, assistant managers scattered around the floor in the Smith Center. And they've got these clipboards and they're recording stuff. And I'm sort of looking at it and I'm sorting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy's recording if that guy hit or missed the three-point shot he just took or whether he hit the free throw or missed or whether in this 3v3, 4v4, 5v5 that he boxed out on this rebound or failed to, whether they won the game or lost the game. Then all of a sudden, uh, you know, one of the assistant coaches who's working with the bigs who are playing high-low and it's competitive and you can see this manager underneath, you know, determining whether or not one big got the assist and the other one got the points and who was defending and all the details of this practice were all of a sudden a part of this matrix. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm so impressed at the end of practice, you see all these assistant managers sprint to the scores table, the head manager sitting there at the scores table, and he's getting all this data from all of his assistants and he's putting it down on the, the table there. And he's accumulating that day's practice data. While this is going on, Dean is addressing the troops at the end of practice. By the time he's finished with his address, he turns around, the head manager is standing there, the head manager hands him basically that day's practice data. Dean takes it, looks at it, and starts calling off names. The head manager has now assessed your performance in practice with some sort of algorithm of, you know, finishing percentage, you know, boxing out, rebound, whatever it is. That, you know, I don't know anything about basketball, except I know math. And all of a sudden, the first five guys leave the shower immediately. Uh, because they were one, two, three, four, five in that day's algorithm for performance. The next five are doing sprints, um, you know, up and down, you know, foul line and back, you know, mid stripe and back, you know, other foul line and back, you know, end line and back or whatever they call these things in basketball. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the last five guys, I assume, are running until the end of recorded time. So this is, <laughs> I think, oh my gosh, look at this immediate accountability. So I'm thinking, I'm going to do this. So I took his stuff. I mean, his, his basketball ideas, I soccerized them, took it to a completely different level, and that's the cauldron. So now when a kid comes to practice, they know everything they do is a competition. Every shooting drill, there's someone recording whether or not you finish it. Every 3v3, 4v4, 5v5, 6v6, 7v7, they're going to be winners and losers. Make sure you're a winner. Make mm -hmm. sure you're the margin of victory. We're going to have drafts for our 4v4 tournaments. Make sure your teammates want to play with you. Because I'm going to know who's drafted first on average, who's drafted second, but also who's drafted last. And by the way, 
This is a matter of public record. So when you come by practice the next day and look at your draft rank, you're going to be horrified. So even though your parents would like to say, oh, the reason you're not playing is Anson hates you. And yet you look at the draft board and there's not a kid on the roster that wants to play with you. So guess what dawns on you? Not all the crap your parents have been serving you your entire life, but the fact that, oh my gosh, I've got to play better because mm -hmm. no one wants me on their team. So now all of a sudden they do become accountable because what makes you accountable? Impact, mm -hmm. results, effectiveness, mm -hmm. winning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all the data is for you to see. It's on a bulletin board, you know, down in our practice complex and every player wanders by it and pretends like it's no big deal. And it is a big deal. And even though mm -hmm. I never talk about it, and yes, we have it during our meetings, so I, I can reference it, but I don't, I don't put pressure on them because this sort of motivation has to be intrinsic. <clears throat> if this doesn't come from you, I can't whip you into becoming a world champion. Mm -hmm. You have to choose it because those nine qualities we talk about in our player conferences, that's stuff that you've got to do. Mm -hmm. If I am the one taking you to water every single day to make sure all nine of those boxes are checked, First of all, I'm going to be dead after a week because I've got 30 players in my roster, yeah. uh, but you're never going to make it because if I am the reason you make it at the highest level, you are never going to make it. And what are we doing right now is we are turning the responsibility of their player development over to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, uh, all these things are critical for their growth. And I stole these ideas from Dean Smith. I love that's a fantastic story of just even the 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 immediacy of of getting the results back i've understood you know the competitive cauldron from what i've read but i've never appreciated the immediate especially the dean smith story the immediacy of getting those results back uh when you recruit how are you I mean, I'm sure you've, you've had, like you said, every coach says, you know, you have certain recruits that come in and surprise you with, with their attitude in a positive way and certain that surprise you with their attitude in a negative way. How good have you gotten at trying to identify an athlete who's going to fit these nine criteria in your recruiting process? Or do you, do you have a process when it comes to that? I would love to pretend I do, but I don't. Yeah. It's a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, and some, I am always shocked, but Honestly, it comes down to what we're talking about. It comes down to athletic character. I mm. mean, if I could figure out a way to test this, and obviously you're trying to see it. You're trying to see it. You're trying to see this kid. And most of these kids obviously come from elite teams. So very rarely are these elite teams getting pounded in any game. And so the time to really see character is when uh, you're losing and to see mm. if this kid can change the result uh, with their individual, you know, desire to sort of carry the team. Uh, so, because we are recruiting elite players off elite teams, you don't see these collisions that often at a youth level uh, for all the reasons that I described when I was introducing the ideas earlier. Um, these are clearly the best players in their environments. Uh, so very rarely do they end up, you know, trying to compete against someone that's at the same level or better. Mm -hmm. um, so I've made mistakes. Uh, I've tried to correct, you know, the way we recruit. And I think we've done a pretty good job. The one thing I think we do very well, though, is we like to play the kids we recruit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think a lot of programs pride themselves on you come to wherever and you will play 90 minutes. Um, we have another competition even set up within the game itself. And that's the substitution decision, <clears throat> because we try to play between uh, 16 and 22 players a game. If you're willing to defend, uh, we're going to play you. 
Uh, and as a result, I think this really helps my teams remain consistent because some teams are all over the map. One year they're competing for national championships and they fall up. Then other years they fall off the edge of the earth because they've just graduated a great class or something. And we usually pretty much hang in there every year, uh, even if we graduate a great class. Um, and I think one of the reasons is we play our kids. So here's the other competitive collision that the kids have to get used to in our program. Let's assume you start for me and uh, you're in my front six. My front six, because of our demand on how hard they have to work defensively, uh, is we usually sub them out uh, 30 minutes into the first half or sometimes earlier. The decision for when they come out is when a superior player fatigued is not as good as an inferior player fresh. I try to navigate where that line is. And so basically, the longer you can play at the highest level, the longer you're going to stay in the game. And whoever your tag team partner is can take pieces out of your time based on their performance. So even when the practice week is over, you're still competing in the game to play maximum minutes. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things add up to develop a wonderfully hard player psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, all these different you know, collisions and challenges and standards are a part of what make our kids absolutely unique. And how do you, the, the, this question, I'm going to give you space to talk about your, your summer camps, because for me, I, I work a lot, I'm a lacrosse coach. And so I work a lot of summer camps and programs and, you know, run by different colleges or club teams. And, you know, you've certainly talked a lot about, you know, the, the current youth athlete uh, who I'm working with on a daily basis. And, and I agree with everything you said. And so how do you structure your, I know you do camps for players as well as coaches and teams. How do you structure those so that they're uniquely Anson Dorrance and UNC? I mean, obviously there's the skill portion I imagine, but what, is, what else is a part of those camps that make them unique to you? Well, uh, they're competitions. They're, let's assume uh, the average camp for us is 400 kids. We have a 1v1 competition. You've got to basically, in a way, defeat 399 kids to be the camp 1v1 champion. <laughs> so you've done some, you've done hellacious work. If at the end of the week, you're the only one standing. Yeah. And uh, we show the championships for all of these different things on the second to last uh, day is when we have the 1v1 finals, the long ball championships, the 4v4 tournament championships for all the teams. <clears throat> so we have like a competition day the day before they leave. And then the final morning when all the parents are there to pick their kids up, we're not going to show them these small games. They get to see the 11v11 championship. And I am there at the 11v11 championship. So if your team gets to the final, I'll tell you this, I am on your sideline. And uh, I love it, especially if the game's a tie. Because if the game's a tie, all these parents are there. And of course, this for them is they're at the University of North Carolina. They're in the you know camp final. And then uh, I hate the way soccer games are decided. I hate penalty kicks. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, if I you know was the soccer god that ruled all of soccer, I would have this methodology that we stole from uh, Massachusetts who do something like this uh, at a state level uh, for their state championships. So what happens if you're tied at the end of the camp championship? And I frigging love it whenever we're tied. Basically, <clears throat> every two minutes, uh, no, 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 every minute, each team has to lose a player. 
So then it becomes gladiators because yep. they're at the end. It might be a two V two at the end with, you know, one team's two gladiators against the others. And the first rule we inject into the water for uh, basically golden goal, because the next uh, team that scores obviously wins is the offsides rule is thrown out the window. So now there's no offsides. So we're in overtime. <laughs> there's no offsides because I hate the offsides rule. Yeah. Uh, because gosh, so many games are determined on just, you know, a guy's, you know, Hair. fingernail over the line. Are you kidding me? I don't want that to be the determining factor. So we're not going to penalty kicks. We're going to take kids off. So now it is, it's gladiators. And so, you know, my favorite moments are literally it's 11 v 11. It's not 11 v 11. It's 120 yards by 75 yards and it's two V two and there are no offsides. So, holy cow, you can cut the tension with a knife and the parents are going crazy. And of course, when a team wins in that context, it, I mean, the bench is empty, you know, yeah. like it's a World Cup championship final. And, you know, the parents are crying and this is the finest moment <laughs> in their little daughter gladiator's <laughs> life. And uh, so, yeah, we uh, we try to, you know, we make the, 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 the games fun. And you can tell just from the way I'm describing it that <clears throat> I love competition and I make it fun. And we make it fun. We don't make it this, you know, what a lot of people try to uh, pretend it is, which is this oppressive environment where it's all about winning and losing. And you, know, you can't, you know, do this winning and losing thing for youth sports because of the mental health issues. No, mm -hmm. if you're a fun coach and the kids know you're having fun and yeah, you're going to celebrate winners and et cetera, et cetera. It can still be gloriously fun. Uh, even in, in the loss, if you got to the final or something. So for me, uh, we set up these competitions in the camp as well. So they basically get a taste of North Carolina. And we tell them this at the beginning of camp. Yeah. You guys are going to be involved in the cauldron. There are 400 kids here. Who's going to be my 1v1 champion at the end of the week? And, you know, and 20 kids will throw yeah, their hands, hands, hands in yeah. the air. And, you know, I appreciate the fact you 20 raised your hands. And of course, these are kids that came to previous camps. Because in the previous camps, I told them the same thing. You are very brave. You have an incredible self-belief if you think you're going to win. And I love that. I love the arrogance for you to throw your hand in the air. Are you kidding me? That's why the United States, you know, is winning world championships and Olympic gold medals because of women like you. I friggin' love it. So these women, they're going to be glorified because in all the environments they come from, women are excoriated for being competitive and winning and what the heck is going on with that? I mean, mm -hmm. the boys, if you're a little boy and you're competitive, your dad puts you on a pedestal. So why treat the little girl any differently? So what do mm -hmm. we do in our camp? Are you a, you know, a shark with blood in the water? Boy, if you come to the right camp, because I'll yeah. tell you, if you carve everyone up, we're going to glorify you at the end of this week. Yeah. And you don't have to be, uh, you know, humble about it. Obviously be graceful in victory and defeat, but you know, no, go for it. And we're going to build that. One of my favorite lines in Mia Hamm's book, Go for Goal, is she said, when I got to North Carolina, I could finally be the player I was. Mm. And I know what she meant by that. I could finally come into an environment where I didn't have to apologize for beating everyone to death every minute. And so those are the sort of women we attract. And that's the environment we have in camps. And we give every kid a taste of it. Yeah. And what I love about what you just described is, you know, because you mentioned, you know, certainly competitiveness, especially with young women. Uh, some folks maybe have a negative connotation to it or approach to it or or look at that and say, that's not what we should be focused on with kids. But the reality is 
what you're describing is the kids want to win too. It's mm -hmm. fun for them. And I think where some coaches cross the line is it becomes more important for the coach than the kid. Mm -hmm. Like you should want these kids to be competitive for their own experience. I, I, uh, one of the camps I work with, they asked me to coach a flag football league and I've never like, like American football. I've never played football. I don't know. I don't think they believed me when I said that there's this assumption, like ah, everybody knows football. And I was like, I know nothing about it. And, and, but I coached these eight, nine-year-old team and we went to the championship and we ended up winning the championship game. And I was the night before going through plays, so worked up, going into the game nervous. And the other coach was even like, Hey man, like we're just going to have fun today. And I go, well, I'm here to win. And he like laughed and because people know what I do for a living too. So they don't expect that there's this like positive energy assumption. And I said, I go, if you don't think those kids want to win more than anything in the world, you are blind. And it doesn't mean we're going to be cruel or mean or cheat. It means we're here to compete. And, 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 and I said, we won. And, and I go, man, these kids are going to, the kids who lost are going to remember this for the rest of their life. So I think uh, that's the nuance. It's so much people want to read the right thing out of a book and, and this is the line you're going to take, but it's like, no, there's so much nuance to all this stuff. And, and if you take the competition out of sport, it's not sports anymore. Yeah, Bobby, I'm with you. In fact, I got to share the story because you reminded me of something uh, and just you're struck a chord by telling your own story. Um, when I was an undergraduate at UNC, one of my best friends was a guy by the name of Kip Ward. Uh -huh. Kip Ward was the Pied Piper of soccer in Chapel Hill. He started this recreational soccer league called the Rainbow Soccer League. And Kip was this hippie uh, and he was a wonderful hippie, long hair. And, you know, he had every hippie characteristic. Yeah. And the other hippie characteristic he had, you know, is he didn't believe in, uh, you know, winning. He believed in just, you know, kids having fun, which, by the way, I also believe it. And uh, of course, what did he do for his rainbow soccer league? He recruited all of his friends. So I was one of the coaches in his league. And so uh, because I knew something about the game, I had four teams to coach elementary school team, middle school team, high school team, and then senior team. Mm -hmm. I played on the senior team I coached, but I coached all of the different age groups. And so like you, I believed in winning. And that was completely counter to the rainbow philosophy because uh, the league didn't keep score. They didn't keep standings. But here's what I knew. And here's what you know, just from your story. I know you know yeah, this. Yeah. Every kid knows if they won or lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know the score. score. They know the score. And what was really cool is all these people that all were also a part of this uh, that were coaching for Kip and refereeing for Kip uh, came from the hippie philosophy because this is you know late '60s, early '70s, and I don't know if you were even alive back then, but this is you know this is the hippie era. So if you want to study that, you can you know get a history book out. So this is all about you know free love and that sort of thing. You know, this is all for fun. And uh, I didn't believe in just, you know, uh, I believed in this. I believed in my kids were going to have more fun if we were going to beat you to death. So I went over to the uh, neighborhood right next to the uh, recreational field and recruited these incredible athletes by watching them play youth basketball. <laughs> and I recruited them on my soccer team, not because they were soccer players, but because they were fast as hell, yeah. quick as cats. And obviously you could tell they were coordinated. And we went around beating all these teams to death. And everyone hated me, which, by the way, has continued. That hasn't changed because I'm no longer, you know, <laughs> coaching at a youth level. Um, and I used to just tease them because here's what I knew. They were so hypocritical. 
And I would say, you know what? I love this. I love the fact that you guys could care less whether or not you guys won or lost. But here's what I've learned. I've learned my kids are a lot happier when they beat all of you guys to death and says, you don't care. This is a perfect marriage. I will beat you guys to death. Your kids will be happy. You'll be happy. Me and my kids will be happy. <laughs> and of course, I was winding them up because I knew they weren't happy over yeah. getting beaten to death by us. So they were trying to pretend like they were superior. Right. And so for me, I just, you know, loved, you know, lancing their hypocrisy. Um, and uh, by the way, I haven't changed a lick. Yeah. Um, but our kids are still having fun by competing. But your story, Bobby, reminded me of that. That takes me back to the beginning of my coaching life, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. It's fun. It, the, the kids, the kids enjoy it as much as, but again, it's when the, co and, and you've embodied this, you know, talking about, uh, you know, giving roses, you know, for before a championship because or after a championship because the rose like you said it's ephemeral the rose dies eventually and and i love that because uh like that's the same with winning right and, and if you're a coach or even an athlete who wins once and and lets that be on your mantle for the rest of your life you're probably not going to win again and 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 so it's it's not it's not putting too much into that it's that's what's fun but let's not hang our ego on that no, Bobby, you're absolutely right. So you described something that's so critical for all of my kids to understand. And I think they all do by the time they graduate. Um, athletics, uh, success is ephemeral. It has to be renewed. Um, and your renewal is based on your commitment to it, which gets right back full circle to what we started with, which is we're going to talk about those nine qualities. Um, and if you want to become truly elite, uh, you've got to achieve in all those areas. And if there's an anchor... I'll be able to point uh, to the anchor with you. Mm -hmm. And then you get to decide whether or not to correct it. Uh, because uh, in the old days, and you'll appreciate this, Bobby, I used to get really upset when we recruited a talented player that didn't achieve his or her potential. Um, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, this is ridiculous. Why am I getting upset over this? And I read this quote somewhere about uh, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was doing. I was taking this poison of my own ambition for that kid and the kid, you know, didn't invest. And so I stopped doing that. So now if I see a really talented kid, um, I'm going to tell them that this is what your potential is, which is that conversation with those nine different things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they can determine whether or not they're going to play. Cause if they don't make a commitment, they get to sit in the most fabulous seat in the house right next to me and watch their teammates play that are more committed. Mm -hmm. And do you have the talent to play? Yes, but you have decided not to. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And so I don't get upset with them anymore. And I'm just, uh, I'll keep telling them how talented they are and just wait for them to make a decision. And if they don't, I don't get angry with them anymore. Yeah. Oh, I just bench them. I was, it reminds me of the uh, conversa conversation you had with Roy Williams on your podcast where he told the Dean Smith story of the player who kept shooting, right? Oh. And he said, he said, you know, he pulled him out and he said, you know, why'd you keep shooting? The player said, well, I was feeling it. And Dean Smith said, well, now you're going to feel that bench. <laughs> Um, so I have two more questions. Uh, sure. We're running against clock. Two more questions. One of them is uh, my, so my dad is how I was introduced to you uh, growing up. Uh, he didn't, he did not play soccer, but me, my two sisters, my brother, we got into soccer and one of my, da my dad ended up coaching us and his a belief he tried to, he instilled in us was if you're going to do something, be the best at it. Like, mm -hmm. and if you don't want to be the best at it, then go find something else that you want to be the best at. He used to hate 
hate, you know, we all had to play an instrument because that's what you have to do growing up. And we never wanted to practice it. And he would always just, he wanted us to quit. And my mom's like, they can't, like they have to do it for school. But it drove him nuts that we wouldn't practice and then show up to a, to a you know, a recital or whatever. So he ends up, I share this to say, because he ends up, you know, diving headfirst into learning how to coach soccer. He went to trainings for it. Just, he was just coaching us as kids. He went to trainings for it and he started consuming your books. And so uh, your name was a part of our household when I was growing up. We went and saw, we went up to Boston one time to watch the the women's national team play in the nineties. I think maybe it was on like a, a tour or something like that. And, uh, you know, Mia Hamm's posters were up in our rooms. Like it was a part of growing <laughs> up. And so I told him we were doing this interview and I said, he's about the same age as you. I said, what, what is one question you want me to, to ask Anson? And I'm literally going to read it were as exactly how he said, he sure. said, after all these years, he's like, the same age as you, after all these years, what keeps you in the game? What belief sustains your drive? Schadenfreude keeps me in the game. Schadenfreude is a phenomenal German word. Schaden is the German word for damage. Freude is the German word for joy. Hmm. Schadenfreude is the incredibly great feeling I have when one of my enemies is suffering. So um, I'm a polarizing figure in our sport. Mm. And a part of it is obviously uh, our success over the years. And um, I've been pulling, you know, lances and daggers out of my back forever. Mm -hmm. So I want to keep torturing all of my critics until the day I die. Mm. Because boy, does this continue to drive them nuts? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, if I finally reach the point where I can sense that uh, they're not, you know, putting daggers in my back anymore, I can gracefully retire. But that's what gets me up in the morning. I yeah. am going to keep torturing and frying all those people for as long as I can. Yeah, well, they're going to keep putting daggers in your back, so you're going to be coaching for for a while then. If that's <laughs> well, actually, I got to confess this because my wife and I are you know, talking about this. Now I love my wife. And, um, when I, we first got married, she totally supported me. Uh, I was selling life insurance, uh, door to door. And, uh, uh, she was the one that put, uh, you know, food on the table. Uh, she was a very successful dancer. She moved to Chapel Hill and was hired immediately by the, mm. uh, uh, the top ballet school in Chapel Hill. So she was my, my meal ticket forever. Um, and I owe her this. Uh, it took me so long to catch her income. Um, I used to, because I'm so competitive, I would, you know, be there at the accountant's office and, you know, 10, 15 years in, she's still making more money than I am. She's driving me <laughs> crazy. Are you kidding me? So she was a great provider for me. And um, I'll never forget, uh, you know, uh, certainly that period, but also the way she's raised my kids and supported me totally. And uh, I think I owe it to her to kick back and wake up in the morning and find out what she wants to do. Um, because obviously my days are still super busy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I owe it to her and I, and I get it, uh, even though, um, I'm not one of these guys that wants to, you know, travel. I hate traveling. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I like to read books and play sports. And the nice thing about playing sports is I'm falling apart so much. I'm only left with one sport now. All the others, I've just <laughs> what, my body to What's shreds. the sport you're still able to play? <laughs> Pickleball. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to move. You can stay in there. Uh, I've got a torn left hip labrum. I've got my, uh, my left knee is deteriorating. I have four bulging discs in my back 
and this is from playing inline hockey too long and playing soccer forever. Yeah. And uh, I'm just falling apart. Um, for a whole semester, I was on gabapentin. And trust me, you don't want to go in that direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but pickleball has revived me. Uh, yeah. My son is my partner, which means he does all the running. I just stand there with a racket in my hand and reach out every now and again and smack a ball. But I absolutely love it. I love playing with him. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I love sports. I love books. And I love this sort of thing. Uh, Bobby, honestly, I love talking to people. Uh, I love selling my sports, selling my game, uh, but also convincing people on choices they've got to make to get to their potential. And that's mm -hmm. what this conversation has been about with you. Yeah. And so tell your dad, uh, that's what gets me out of bed. Um, Schadenfreude. That's perfect. That's perfect. Um, so my last question is the theme of the podcast is 50 cups of coffee. The concept is uh, 52 weeks in a year. My challenge to people is to have conversations like this, like you and I are having more often. And it doesn't always lead to something tremendous. It, it leads to us learning and growing. It leads to us learning new perspectives. And sometimes it does lead to a job opportunity or something you wouldn't have anticipated. Uh, I'll tell this story and then let you share yours. I, uh, um, I was working with Joe, Joe Segula, uh, your women's volleyball coach at, at North Carolina. And, and you and I had been exchanging text messages and, and, and talking about, uh, you know, these concepts. And when I was down there, you said, you know, what, let's, uh, let's get together. And I had thought, you know, maybe I'll just swing by your office, shake your hand, say, hey, it's been good talking to you on the phone because you're a busy guy. You met me at your stadium, gave me a tour of the stadium. We walked around and talked for over an hour. Uh, and that was on a Sunday, I think, because I was our, my, my meeting with Joe was on Monday. And I was just floored by that, um, that you took the time to do that and to connect and talk and share. And those are, that's a 50 cup of coffee story I share with many people of just how much I learned from that conversation. So I love to ask my guests, what is a 50 cups of coffee story you have of either a connection you had with someone that meant a lot to you or a, a connection you had with someone that was at the time seemingly just a connection, but led to something more than that? Well, actually, I told you the story uh, being in this in environment, just like meeting with you. It's like uh, me uh, being invited by Dean Smith mm -hmm. to watch his practices. Uh, the great men that have impacted me took time for me. And this is when I was absolutely nothing. Hadn't won anything, hadn't done anything. And yet this great man reached out to me. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'm paying it forward. Mm -hmm. And so, and this course, this drives my wife nuts. If someone calls me, I pick up the phone. If someone texts me, I respond. If I get mm -hmm. an email, uh, I send a reply back. Uh, and as a result, it takes me, you know, up until midnight sometimes to clear my text messages and my emails uh, just to stay on top of it. Because uh, when I fall behind, it takes me forever to catch up. And that's just because of the way I was always treated by these other great people that made a huge difference in my life. And I also consider myself incredibly lucky. Uh, the guy I played for at UNC, uh, when he was retiring, walked in and told my athletic director, Bill Cody, Kobe, to hire me. I didn't have a coaching resume. My coaching resume was the Rainbow Soccer League, hmm. recreational soccer. I went from rec soccer to the top of Division One because the man I played for liked me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the AD took a big chance on me because, you know, I didn't have a resume. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, not only did I coach his men's program, because when Marvin retired, I was taking the men's program, not the women's. And then Bill Kobe, three years after I was hired to coach the men, took me out to watch the women's club play. 
because they were petitioning for varsity status. And I told Bill, I said, hey, Bill, they're, they're organized. Uh, clearly, the coach has done a good job. So now I'm shilling for the coach they had to be hired. And he said, well, Anson, uh, at the time I was a law student and coaching the men. So I was a part-time uh, men's soccer coach. And he said, well, Anson, if you'll coach the women's team along with the men, I'll make your part-time men's position full-time. And I have not looked back. Mm-hmm. I did the men and women together for 10 years. And then since uh, 89, uh, just uh, the women. And I've had a, an opportunity to pioneer a sport because back in the old days, uh, and it wasn't a popular choice to coach uh, on the women's side, uh, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden we've made it something pretty special. Um, and it was because of people like Dean Smith that embraced me, Marvin Allen that trusted me, Bill Kobe that took a huge risk with me. <clears throat> so uh, my story is similar to yours. Uh, these are people that threw their doors open for me, trusted me, mm-hmm. um, weren't too busy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, gave me a chance. Uh, and uh, I will never forget it because I have lived an incredibly gilded life uh, in this paradise as a result. And I will never forget uh, uh, those people that threw doors open for me. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I love, love and appreciate your answer and, and the names that you've shared and the relationships that have served you. And uh, you've passed it on to your players. You build relationships with them, which is the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you because that that's what I believe is it, it leads to wins, but it's also the goal of coaching uh, is having those relationships. And, uh, um, and, and I'll, I'll uh, confirm your, your, what you said about answering texts and picking up phones. And, and it's good to hear that it drives your wife crazy. Cause I've often said to my wife, this guy has to be getting more texts and emails and calls <laughs> than me. And he responds to everything. And, and so, uh, uh, I've often used you as an example of, cause people will ask me, you know, with, with a commitment to connection, it's gotta get busy. And I'll, I'll use you as an example of someone who it's just, you make it a priority. I assume because, because you do respond to, to, to the texts and emails and the phone calls, you make it a priority. And that's just the way it is. It's a priority because it's important. So thank you for, for being a leader when it comes to culture and relationships and loving your players and, and building relationships. Well, Bobby, thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So um, thank you for this. That was awesome. One of my all-time favorite interviews and episodes for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. To learn more from Anson, check out his podcast and re-released book, Vision of a Champion. To attend one of his camps, go to carolinagirlssoccercamp.com. That's carolinagirlssoccercamp.com. I, I, I wish I could go. I think it would be awesome. And if you send your daughter or team, be sure to tell them to raise their hand when he asks who's going to win. On a personal note, I started season one by dedicating that season to Kobe Bryant. I launched the show just shortly after we lost Kobe, his daughter Gianna, and their close friends in that tragic helicopter crash. Season two, I am dedicating to Tar Heel and friend of the Audley family, Ashley Riggs. Just three months ago, the UNC soccer family lost a teammate when Ashley Riggs passed away after a long battle with cancer. On this episode, I shared with Anson that my dad is a huge fan of his and consumed his books when we were kids. 
when I told my dad I was talking with Anson for the podcast, he told me he had every intention years ago of reaching out to him to see if he could pick his brain or meet with him or, or learn from him in any way how to be a better women's girls soccer coach. But he never did that because, as he says, he was lucky enough to score a JV girls soccer coaching job under varsity head coach Ashley Riggs. I remember as a kid when my dad told us he was coaching with a former UNC women's soccer player, someone who played for Anson Dorrance. It was like meeting a celebrity. I never came to know Ashley well, but she became a great friend to my dad and their relationship was a highlight of his coaching career. Together, they were very successful and led their high school girls soccer team to the New York State Final Four. Under Anson Dorrance, Ashley was a two-time national champion and a co-captain her senior year. As you heard on this podcast, being a captain on an Anson Dorrance-led team is a big deal. For two reasons, really. Number one, you're on a team, as Anson shared, this was especially back in, in the 90s, of, of some of the best players in the world, the best leaders in the world in the sport of women's soccer. And on top of that, you also have to earn the respect of Anson Dorans and, and meet the high standard that he sets for what's it, what it means to be a captain on one of his teams. And Ashley met that standard. We lost Ashley just three short months ago, and in honor of her, an annual award is being set up through the UNC Women's Soccer Program. This award will be presented annually to a player that demonstrates hard work, perseverance, and fight. Monies will also go to sponsoring high school teams and players who otherwise may not be able to afford to attend a UNC soccer camp. Anson shared in this interview what it means to go to one of these camps, uh, uh, what, what it feels like, what it looks like. You can imagine as a young girl being having the ability and the chance to go to one of these camps. And if you're in youth sports, you know that these, these camps aren't cheap. And there's people out there that, that would love that experience, would benefit from that experience, and simply cannot afford that experience. This fund set up in Ashley Riggs' name will go towards helping kids go to that camp. If you would like to help the fund, donations can be sent to Educational Foundation, parentheses, Women's Soccer, P.O. Box 2446, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 27515. And that address is also in the show notes, so you don't have to rewind and, and, and take it down as I say it. Go to the show notes. The information is in there. Checks can be made out to Educational Foundation, parentheses, Women's Soccer, and be sure to put Ashley's name in the memo line. 50 Cups of Coffee with Bobby Audley is a production of BobbyAudley.com. That's my super creative business name. Head on over there to watch the 50 Cups of Coffee TEDx Talk, listen to past episodes of the show, and learn how I could help your team or organization. Our theme music and art is by Matisse Soy. Until next time, stay connected.